scripture tonight is from 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. This is God's word. We pray, Father, we approach this great text that Ted has read for us tonight uh, with not a little fear and trepidation at all of the great truths that seem to be just jammed into these, these five verses. My prayer, Father, is, is that you'll help me to communicate not, not only clearly but powerfully and not only powerfully, Father, but, but, but in, in, in ways that help you to be glorified. And, and for uh, the church family tonight, I pray that you give us all eyes that see and ears that hear in order for us to drink in this, this, this great text and it impact us the way that rain impacts parched ground. That it impact us the way, Father, that, that it should in order to, to melt us. Father, thank you ever so much for it. And bless us in this time, not only as we worship you and focus all of our affection on you in such a way that we magnify you in our hearts, but that we also seek in our heart and mind and soul to expand the borders of our understanding of you and what you have done and accomplished for us in Christ. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 5 begins with the words, This is the message we have heard from him. As you know from uh, our previous studies, John has already mentioned in this text, the first ten verses, that he has access to Christ, that he had an experience of Christ before and after the resurrection. He was able to, to see him and to touch him. He beheld him. And he says that he also has a fellowship with God that is more than just a knowledge about God. It's It's... It's not fellowship in the sense of just knowing God. It's fellowship in the sense of having personal interaction with God. He has a personal exchange with God the Father and with God the Son. It's fellowship. It's a way that he describes what we might call today in the 21st century our Christian walk. Or what it means to be a Christian. Or the way that we might describe Christianity as a faith. It's about fellowship with God. And this is precisely, this is the very thing that humans are supposed to experience, and this is really what we're after, even if we don't know it. All humans are after this, even if they don't know it, whether it be in, in, in life or sex or art or career or whatever. This kind of, of experience. And John says this is how your joy is made complete. And that if you want this kind of joy, 
if you finally understand that this fellowship with God is what you're really after, then you've got to get the message down that he's referring to in verse 5. The message that he has heard from God and declared to us. And what we have in verses 5 through 10, again, what we looked at last week and what Ted has read for us tonight, is the gospel in a nutshell. Now we looked at, in, in part last week, uh, uh, at some of the obstacles that we have in this fellowship. You know, lots of times, you, you know, we read texts like this or we hear someone talk about the Christian experience as fellowship with God, as this complete and whole joy. And we, we think to ourselves, you know, been a believer, been you know, a Christian for many, many years and have, have never really experienced this the way at least that John has experienced it and describes it. And so uh, what we looked at last week was one of these obstacles to that fellowship which we call darkness. And that's really kind of going to where, that, that's where we want to pick up tonight. And so the first enemy of this fellowship is, again, this darkness. If God is love, which means as we talked about last week, if it, when we say God is love, that means that God has to forgive you. That God has to forgive you. But like the, the, um, the, the philosopher Heinrich Hein said on his deathbed, you know, aren't you afraid that you're going to meet your, your maker after living such a sort of a, a, a life full of debauchery? He said, I'm not worried about meeting God. God is love. God has to forgive me. It's His duty. If, if you believe that God is love, which means that God has to forgive you, because that's what He does, then it's going to turn out that God's love is more of a duty than a mercy. Which is not really love. I mean, there's great irony in that kind of thinking. Everybody wants God to forgive them as a duty of His love. And in so doing, they turn it into something other than the kind of love that they're seeking. The first part of that message is God is light. Unless God is light, then He can't be love. Because if He is light, and He is, then He can't just shrug at your sin. If God is light, meaning that He's, he's holy, and in Him there is no darkness, then He just can't shrug at your sin. I mean, how really inspiring is that? How inspiring is it to see a parent who has their value system turned completely upside down by a kiddo who lies or steals or worse, only to have that parent say, you know, I, for, I forgive you because that's my job. On the other hand, because God is light, because He is holy, in Him there is no darkness. He has got to do something about the darkness because God is light. That is, He is holy. God makes everything revolve on what is good and right and true. And while we nod in the direction of God's value system, we actually want everything to revolve around what is advantageous to us or what, is, you know, what makes us feel really kind of comfortable or what makes us really, really kind of happy in this life. So, for instance, we know about the Ten Commandments and we know that the Ten Commandments teach a successful life and the Ten Commandments say if you want this kind of a life, a life that's in direction of God, you've got to go in this direction. But what we perceive as our good seems to be going in the other direction. Because we want what is advantageous. We want what makes us very, very happy. And in the end, we go in this direction. And that's why there's chaos. It's because of the darkness. It's the darkness which is the opposite of God and light. I mean, go back to Isaiah. 
Isaiah chapter 6. Sinful Isaiah is, is, in, is in the temple. He's contemplating God. And God shows Himself in such a way that Isaiah has never seen it before. I mean, the cherubim are there and they're saying, Holy, Holy, Holy. And Isaiah gets near the light of God's holiness. He gets near God who is light in whom there is no darkness. And what happens in Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah falls apart. And the same thing happens when Job gets near the holiness of God. He is undone. I heard about you with my ears, but now my eyes have seen you. I despise myself and I repent and I, and I sit in sackcloth and ashes. Job's response to God who is light. And it's the same with Peter. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. And others in the Bible. And what we read here is, is John just following in a long line of those who have experienced the presence of the God who is light. God and God alone is the sinner. And we don't like that. And that's the darkness. We want to be God and we want to be at the center. That's the darkness. And until we come to terms with the fact that God is light and that we are in darkness, then we will not know, we will not understand, we will not have an experience of that kind of fellowship with God who is light. Which leads now to the second thought, the second obstacle. And that is our personal reaction to sin. Or, or our reaction to personal sin. The sin that we know that we commit. Part of the beginning of, of, of the greatness of the gospel is that it begins with bad news. The bad news, before the gospel can be good news, it has to be bad news. And the bad news is that you know, we have to see that we have sinned. That sin is a problem. Not just in creation and not just in other places around the world, but it is a sin in the sphere of my own life. It is a part of my reality. Now listen to what John says in 1 John chapter 1. He says, if we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet we walk in the darkness, that means outside of God's presence, we lie and do not live by the truth. Drop down to verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. Do you know what John's saying here? He's saying, listen, this sin thing is so obvious that if you say you don't have sin, listen, you're a liar. You deceive yourself. The truth's not in you. And then drop down to verse 10. He says, if we claim we've not sinned, not only do we deceive ourselves, but we're calling God a liar. We make Him out to be a liar. His Word has no place in our lives. Again, sin is not just the reality of the world. It's not the reason that gas prices have gone up. It's not the reason that places like Las Vegas flourish. Sin is not just a reality of the world, but it's our own personal reality. Now remember that what we're talking about here at the end of verse 4 of chapter 1 is about having this complete joy. It's about having this fellowship with God. Now the fact is that we are wretched sinners. And God is light... And joy somehow and fellowship with God is somehow the product of something that happens seems to be a little counterintuitive. But the key is in understanding our reaction to personal sin and failure. And it basically boils down to two responses. Think about it this way. One of the ways that you can respond to sin is by being a moralist and, or, or by you know, morality. And the other is in grace as a Christian. 
Now take the moralist first. The moralist life is going to be based on performance. You work hard. You have confidence in the quality of your life. You've never done, you've never done anything intentionally to hurt anybody. You've never killed anyone. You look around you in the neighborhood or at the workplace or around the world and you know, I'm a little bit better than that guy because I've never done those kinds of things. The idea, though, is that God's love is going to be based on human performance. And when human beings do well and they're performing well, then God loves them. Now here's, here's kind of the irony. The moralist and the Christian can and do sometimes look very, very similar. They both go to church. They both serve others in the, in the church, in the community. They give charitably. They, they know the Scripture. They both pray. They might even fast every once in a while. But you can tell the difference between the moralist and the Christian in the confession of sin. That's how you tell the difference. The confession of sin is what brings the Christian into the joy and the fellowship of God. The moralist, on the other hand, is just devastated by new discoveries of sin. The moralistic person who sees the sin in their life is going to doubt the love of God. But the Christian who sees the sin, they too are shattered by it. But then they see and they think about what Christ did on the cross for them. His blood purifies them from all sin. They think about, they see what Christ did for them on the cross and what He's done for them and that grace just becomes more and more precious. The difference is, when it comes to the sin thing, the moralist does not want to see God. And the Christian flies to Him. And when you see the size of the debt you owe to the One who created you, and your understanding of the dynamic complexity of sin, just how pervasive, it just seems to pervade everything, and then you... You know, when you begin to see the complexity of that, then you begin to grow in your understanding of the size of the payment for your sins to be forgiven and for you to be purified from all of unrighteousness and to be purified from sin. And when you confess your sin honestly and truthfully, forthrightly, profoundly before God, then you grow in your understanding, in your, in your understanding of the depth of that solution. Your honesty. Your honesty about the reality of your life, the, the honesty about the reality of your sin debt leads the Christian to understand the incredible riches of grace that are laid at our feet. Now think about your experience of fellowship with God for a moment. And, and think also about your experience of the complete joy. Now think about your own response to your personal sin. Are you responding as a religious moralist, or are you responding to God's incredible, incredible grace by confessing, I'm in darkness, and I sin, and I know it, and I, I choose not to be deceived anymore by that. Listen, we all walk in sin according to John. It's our darkness and His light. And what is going to be your response to that reality? So your confession or your response to personal sin is part of the obstacle too to getting that joy and that fellowship with God. And then he mentions sort of a third one that we'll just uh, refer to generally as inadequate resources. Look at verse 7. If we walk in the light 
as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. Drop down to verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, and He will forgive us our sins, and He will purify us from all unrighteousness. We have to do business with the reality of the darkness. We also have to do business with the reality of the way that a lot of times we want to respond to the reality of that darkness. A lot of times we want to cover it up. A lot of times we want to cover it up with, the, with, with what looks like the, a, a beautiful quilt of our own morality. The problem is we are undone by every new discovery of sin. But when we do confess, we have that fellowship. And not only do we have that fellowship, we find the adequate resources for that, that issue of, of, of sin needing to be dealt with. And us are the inadequate resources. And this is where the joy comes in. In Christianity, you walk in the light by the blood of Christ. It's not by your own work or your own merit or your own efforts. If that's the way it was, then that would make you a self-righteous moralist or in, the, or in other words, a Pharisee. And the joy has a chance in coming to you when you realize that there is more similarity between you and Adolf Hitler or a Charles Manson than there is between you and God on your best day. The reality is God is light. Our reality, we are darkness. And we struggle to even be honest about that sin. And when we, we're not honest about the reality of the darkness, then we make God out to be a liar and we suffer the consequences of never getting the one thing that we really want more than anything else, whether we know it or not, and that is the experience of that joy, the experience of that fellowship with God. But when we're honest and we fly to Him in the truth of our dark, darkness, confessing it all the way, the blood of Jesus purifies us from every sin, meaning that our sins are forgiven. God purifies us from all that unrighteousness. And we're able to have that fellowship with Him. That's, that's the difference. You know, lots of people have a knowledge of God, but they would never describe it as fellowship with God. You know, what kind of marriage is it if you say, you know what, I have a knowledge of my wife, I know her name, I know her social security number, I know how much money she has in the bank, I know where she works, I know where she is every night. But the reality is that there's, there's not much of a, of a relationship there. You can have a knowledge, but there's not the fellowship. There's not that interchange, there's not that experience of the wholeness of that person that God, that God wants so desperately to have with all of us, that, that breeds that joy into us. But what we find when we, when we fly to Him in the truth of our darkness is that that fellowship becomes our reality. Our sins are forgiven. We're purified from all of that unrighteousness. We have fellowship with Him. Our joy is made complete. Now that sounds really wonderful, doesn't it? I mean, you know, I confess this sin. I come to God in truth and in faith. And I become a Christian, meaning that I am saved by the blood of Jesus. My sins are forgiven. You know, now that sounds really wonderful, but it leads sometimes to a very old and very common thought. If that's true, then why would I ever worry about sinning? Why not let sin uh, abound so that, you know, why not sin all the time and let that grace abound? Does that sound familiar to anyone? I mean, Romans chapter 6. You see, in Christianity, you walk in the light by the blood of Jesus. It is also the blood of Jesus that keeps you obedient. You know, 
Peter is going to say sort of the flip side of that coin in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. We die to sin, we live for righteousness. That's the flip coin of what John says about being purified from all of the unrighteousness. We get to live for righteousness now. And you live for righteousness with the blood of Jesus being the incentive. And so when sin is crouching at the door of my heart, the blood that purifies me from all sin, the blood that is there for my sins to be forgiven and cleanses me or purifies me from all unrighteousness, when sin is crouching at the door, I'm, I'm eyeball to eyeball with temptation. I look to the blood of Jesus and it says, are you going to frustrate the whole aim of my earthly career by doing once again what I came to get you out of? Are you going to beat me again? Are you going to strike me in the face once again? I've got to tell you something personal about myself. Whenever I'm eyeball, to, eyeball with temptation, I hardly ever think about the blood of Jesus. At least that way. We never think about it that way when it comes to our disobedience. We don't think of the blood of Jesus this way. We don't think of it as slamming Him to the ground one more time. All we think of is, I can't help it. I'm, I'm unhappy. I need a break. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, Hebrew writer says, How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished? who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified Him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace. What the Hebrew writer is trying to say, and what John is trying to say about the blood of Jesus, is that it should destroy the attractive power of sin over you. Here is Christ writhing in the dust of the garden in agony and dying on the cross with nails and a spear and the mocking and the spitting and all of that for us. Now listen, there's more to overcoming sin than just that. That's just a part of how we overcome sin. But the blood gives us an incentive to stay in the light, not because we might lose that love, that's the moralist speaking, but because we have such a great love to live worthy of. You see the love. That's not a duty. That's not, a, not, that's not an obligation. But you see, that, you see that grace, you see that you see that love as an option chosen. You, you see it as, as mercy. And you see that kind of love coming to you, not from somebody like me or somebody like the guy sitting next to you in the pew but you see it coming from the one of whom it can only be said, He is light. You see that love that's not giving up on you? You, you see that love that is willing to, to travel the great distance from heaven to earth and to have that, that, that glory emptied and covered up in such a way that that Creator is now killable. And He's willing to go that great distance and He's willing to plummet to that, 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 that 
tremendously low level of being killable because He loves us. You see that love, you see that light, and I think it melts you. You know, it's not the nails that kept Jesus on the cross, was it? I mean, the one that can call 10,000 angels, the one that created the nails, the one that created, the one that has the power to say a word and it happens. Do you think three nails could have really kept him on that cross if he wanted to come down? It's not the nails that keep Jesus on the cross. It's his love for you. And does that really melt you? in such a way that you fly to Him and you have fellowship with Him. And because of the experience of that fellowship with Him, the joy is made complete. And whatever happens to you, whatever's taken from you, whatever you experience, both high and low, some of it bad, some of it good, some of it, some, some of it uh, uh, like an earthquake in its sadness, shattering your world, but it doesn't undo you because you have the one thing that means most. And that's fellowship with God. And so he says at the beginning of chapter 2, Dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. And if you've never responded to, to, to God in that way, you know, it's very simple. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's the, the, the thing that you need to do is very simple. It's what we've been talking about. You just need to be honest. Honest, not just about the presence or the reality or the, um, the, the, uh, the, the presence of, of sin in your life that separates you from God, and that's why you're in the darkness, and that's why you don't have fellowship with the God who is light. You're in the darkness. You have this sin that needs to be forgiven. And it's not just being, it's not just being honest about that reality. It's choosing to do something about it because you know that you yourself can't do anything about it. You can't do anything. You can't... Moralism does not work. Religious moralism does not work. Just ask any Pharisee. It doesn't work. It doesn't create intimacy with God. It doesn't create a relationship. In fact, Phariseeism did nothing more than separate people from people and people from God. And so you get serious about the reality of the sin and you get serious about doing something about that reality, which is to confess that sin and to depend on the blood of Jesus to forgive that sin, to purify you from all unrighteousness, and, and, and to take care of every spiritual need that you have in order to have that fellowship with God and to have that kind of joy. And one of the things that you do in that confessing and, and you know, choosing to go in the direction of God rather than in the direction of your own life is to have your sins washed away in baptism and then to enjoy that fellowship day by day. And day by day you'll be transformed into the likeness of Christ because day by day you're supposed to be getting closer to God and in getting closer to God the joy is more intense and as the joy gets more intense the vibrancy of the love and the mercy and the Spirit of God becomes brighter and brighter in you as that Spirit transforms you day by day into the likeness of Jesus. It's that simple. It's that simple. And it, the promise is not that all the bad things are going to be jettisoned from your reality. 
Sometimes in becoming a, a believer, a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth, it means that your life gets a little bit more difficult. And it means that sometimes your experiences are a little bit more, more bitter in this life because of what it means in a world like this to be a believer, to be a disciple. But the thing that makes it worthwhile, the thing that makes it make sense, is that, that thing that we've always been looking for, that experience of the fellowship with our Creator and the joy that that entails, regardless of what happens to you in this life, that can never be taken from you. And if you have that, it doesn't matter what happens to you because you have the most treasured thing in all the universe. And that can happen for you tonight. If you want it to. If you're honest. Let's stand and sing. Standing on the promises of Christ, my King, through eternity.